Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. It's Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, New Zealand is set to vote on lowering the voting age to 16. Scientists have added four new prefixes to the metric system and a peek inside the wide world of monster energy drink collection and trading communities. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. New Zealand lawmakers are set to vote on lowering the national voting age to 16. This comes after a Supreme Court decision that keeping the voting age at 18, as it currently stands, amounts to age discrimination. In New Zealand, there are existing protections against age discrimination, which begin at 16. So part of the court case was bringing up that voting should be included in those protections. Parliament will now vote on the matter, which will require a 75% supermajority, which even those in support of the change are doubtful they can achieve. But still, it raises interesting questions, both in New Zealand and abroad. NPR notes that several countries, including Austria, Malta, Brazil, Cuba, and Ecuador, allow people to vote at 16 years old, and that New Zealand, like other countries, has crept the voting age down over the years, lowering it from 21 to 20 in 1969 and then down to 18 in 1974. Here in the U.S., the voting age began to be lowered from 21 to 18 in various states in the late 60s, a big push which began during World War II and picked up during the Vietnam War. Among the strongest reasons for the push was the huge number of young men being drafted for the war who weren't old enough to vote. Throughout the 2010s, a number of individual cities across the U.S. lowered the voting age for local elections, referendums, or school board elections to 16, and more and more candidates have begun pushing to lower the voting age across the board. In the United States, New Zealand, and other nations, the argument is often that at 16 years old, people are already working, without limits on their hours, and paying taxes. Of course, on the opposite end of the spectrum, given the substantial youth turnout in the U.S. during our recent midterm elections, a number of prominent politicians began calling for raising the voting age back to 21. Turnout of voters 18 to 29 was the second highest it's been in the past three decades, but more impactfully, those voters preferred Democratic candidates by a 28-point margin. 
Harry Enten wrote in an analysis on CNN following the midterms, comparing the party preference by age this year and to elections past, quote, Consider the first midterm, 2006, when millennials made up a significant share of voters under 30. Democrats won 60% of their vote, which isn't all that different from the 63% of voters under 30 that they won this year. Remember, though, that Democrats easily won the House popular vote in 2006, while they'll probably lose it by a couple of points this year. In fact, Democrats won every age group under 30, 30 to 44, 45 to 65, and 65 plus in the 2006 midterms. The difference in support for Democratic House candidates in 2006 between voters under 30 and those 65 and older was 11 points. This year, that gap was 20 points. Going further back to 1990, the last midterm when none of today's voters under 30 were alive, there was basically no age gap. A similar percentage of voters under 30 and those 65 and older cast ballots for Democratic House candidates, end quote. An ideological gap in generations is always true to a certain extent, but voting data and analyses from political scientists have indicated that the gap is increasing, and it may be part of the explanation for the rise in far-right movements around the globe. Pippa Norris, longtime political scientist at Harvard, recently explained a version of this theory in depth on the Ezra Klein Show podcast. Link in the show notes. Norris and her co-author Ronald Englehart also dive even deeper into this theory in their 2019 book, Cultural Backlash, Trump, Brexit, and Authoritarian Populism, which Klein called, quote, the best explanation of the far right's rise that I've read, end quote. Definitely worth at least listening to Norris's interview with Klein on the podcast, if not picking up the book, which I have personally only skimmed so far. But that idea makes it easy to see why more far-right-leaning politicians and influencers started saying that we should raise the voting age after Democrats performed moderately better than expected in the recent U.S. midterms. And again, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. Quoting Arwa Madwi in The Guardian earlier this month, The fact that young people don't like them very much hasn't bypassed the Republican Party. Instead of rethinking their policies, however, some of them have decided to rethink the voting age. Over the last few days, a lot of Republicans have been proclaiming that the U.S. ought to increase the legal voting age to 21. One conservative radio personality even suggested it be raised to 28. The same people who reckon a 10-year-old girl is mature enough to be forced to carry a baby reckon a 20-year-old isn't mature enough to vote. It's not just right-wing Americans who want to stop young people from voting, by the way. In the UK, voter ID laws passed earlier this year have some very ageist stipulations. Older people will be able to show their travel passes as ID to vote, but young people's rail cards and student ID cards won't be accepted. Labor protested the new rules, but didn't seem to put up much of a fight to stop them going through. From the UK to the US, the right clearly sees young people as a threat. Liberals, meanwhile, often seem to take them for granted. Gen Z helped deliver a great result for Democrats in the midterms. Now it's time for Democrats to deliver for them. End quote. And in New Zealand, at least, organizations like Make It 16 aren't going to sit and wait for politicians and legislators to deliver for them. They're trying to take matters into their own hands by getting the vote at 16. And perhaps 16 sounds too young, even if many of them are already paying taxes, or if in New Zealand's case, that had previously been chosen as the age at which age discrimination protections kick in. 
But I'll remind you that so many people we think of as legendary movers and shakers were quite a bit younger than we tend to conceive of them in retrospect. Martin Luther King Jr. was just 26 when he helped organize the Montgomery bus boycott and only 35 when he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He died before ever reaching 40 years old. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein broke the Watergate story at 29 and 28. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, two of the activists who led much of the organizing in the weeks following the Stonewall riots, were just 24 and 17 when the riots occurred. I mean, the founding fathers were mostly under 40 in 1776. Thomas Jefferson was 33, Alexander Hamilton was 21, and the Marquis de Lafayette was just 18. Now, I'm not saying that none of them were discounted due to their age in their own times, and of course, our perception of ages has changed over time, but it can be useful to look back and realize that young people have always been the driving force of change, and maybe we should give them a little more credit in the present. Rona, Queta, Ronto, and Quecto. Those are the first new prefixes added to the International System of Units, aka the metric system, in over 30 years. They were officially dubbed by unanimous vote at the General Conference on Weights and Measurements in Versailles, France at the end of last week. These new prefixes join the ranks of existing ones that we're all familiar with, like milla as in milliliter, and kilo as in kiloliter, as well as lesser-known ones like yoda, which was previously the biggest unit and represented 10 to the 24th power, or a septillion. Quoting The Guardian, At the top end of the scale are the new prefixes RONA, R-O-N-N-A, which stands for a billion, 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 and QUETA, Q-U-E-T-T-A, which is a thousand times larger still. At the bottom end is RONTO, R-O-N-T-O, meaning a billionth of a billionth of a billionth, and QUECTO, Q-U-E-C-T-O, which is a thousand times smaller than that, end quote. The big push for the new unit prefixes was the exponentially expanding world of data science and digital storage, which is working in these huge numbers. According to market intelligence company IDC, the Washington Post reports, all the data in the world will total about 175 zettabytes, or 0.175 yottabytes, by 2025. That is 175 sextillion Numbers that I just can't even fathom. Given these enormous numbers, we needed new ways of classifying them, and those classifications needed to be formalized by the institution that has formalized all the others. Quoting Science Alert, Dr. Richard Brown, the head of metrology at the National Physical Laboratory in London, said he had the idea for the update when he saw media reports using unsanctioned prefixes for data storage, such as brontobytes and hellabytes. Google, in particular, has been using hella for bytes since 2010. Those were terms that were unofficially in circulation, so it was clear that the SI had to do something, he said, end quote. But why not keep Bronto and Hella since they were already being used? I mean, those sound way cooler to me. Well, unfortunately, the standard is that every prefix has to start with a different letter. B and H were already taken. R and Q were pretty much the only ones left. Which does beg the question, what do we do after this? Brown says these units should future-proof us for the next 25 years as data science continues to grow, but... 
what then? Apart from conventions stating that each one start with a different letter, which is so they can be abbreviated to just their first letter, larger prefixes end in A's and smaller prefixes end in O's. Brown adds that the middle of the words are based very, very loosely on Greek and Latin for 9 and 10. And in terms of scale, since thinking in terms of bytes isn't quite tangible enough for most of us to envision, a few articles used the slightly more helpful scale of planets. Earth weighs about 6,000 yodograms, or what we could now call just six ronograms. That's a six followed by 27 zeros. Jupiter, by contrast, is 1.9 million yodograms, or we could now say about two quetograms. That's a two followed by 30 zeros. Going in the opposite direction, an electron weighs one rontogram, or 0.001 yoctograms, the existing subunit representing a septillionth of a gram. So one electron, or one rontogram, is 0.001 septillionth of a gram. Dang. I have come across some interesting collector communities recently. When I shared Mountain Dew's 2022 holiday flavor, Fruit Quake, I briefly fell down the rabbit hole of the Mountain Dew Collectors subreddit, and there's that new documentary I mentioned a while back called The Pez Outlaw that's all about the extreme lengths some Pez collectors have gone to. Well, here's another one. Monster Energy. You know, the energy drinks in the tall boy cans with a logo that looks like it was carved into the can by Wolverine? The drink choice of many gamers and other terminally online folks, Monster Energy was created in 2002 and is currently the second best-selling energy drink in the world after Red Bull, according to Punch Magazine, who recently ran a profile on the people who collect Monster. Now, like Aaron Goldfarb, who wrote the piece, I had previously been unaware of just how many different versions of Monster Energy there are out there. It's so many that, unlike other collector communities, those who collect Monster Cans readily admit it would be impossible to collect them all, or even to keep track of every release. While many sources cite about 35 different monster flavors, from blue ice and watermelon to Swiss chocolate, Irish blend, and chaotic, with a K, there are even more varieties within those, and the releases by year and by country make it even more numerous and complicated. Quoting Punch, New promo releases stay on shelves for about a month in each country, and they need to be snapped up immediately. Discontinued releases are much trickier to find. For Belgian collector David Verlet, part of collecting's appeal lies in amassing the same releases from different countries and noting the subtle differences in can size, lettering, or health labels. Take, for example, the Mexican release of Mango Loco, which warns of excess calories and excess sugar, or his display of the Ultra Rosa release with versions from the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia. Even the color of the liquid can differ from country to country, depending what ingredients are and aren't allowed in each region. With such minimal gradations, sometimes it's tough to decipher your own collection, says Verlet. Verlet prioritizes acquiring full sets of specific cans and interesting promotional variants, like a series saluting Formula One superstar Lewis Hamilton or Canadian Gronk. 
He might not have the most monster energy in the world, but Verlet has one of the most diversified collections, he tells Punch. In fact, he doesn't relate to those collectors who pursue every single SKU ever made and are then forced to keep their prizes hidden in storage. I'd never want to do that. I like to watch them. I like to post photos of them, he says, end quote. Now, one question that you might have for people who collect Monster Energy drinks or Mountain Dew or any other technically eventually perishable item is, do you consume them? And if you don't, do they degrade in any sort of disgusting or dangerous ways over the years? Do the cans eventually explode? Over on the Mountain Dew subreddit, I saw a number of people saying that they tend to buy two cans or bottles of each product, one that they can taste and enjoy, and one to keep on the shelf. Within the monster collecting community, Punch says it's perfectly acceptable to drain the cans by adding two small holes at the bottom and therefore keeping the pull tab intact. It's not considered degrading to the value of the can. And remarkably, Verlet, who loves the cans so much he recently went on a Central European road trip to take photos of his monster cans in front of famous attractions, doesn't actually like the taste of monster energy, saying it has too much sugar. Now, in terms of trading the cans, not just collecting them, a lot of them go for amounts in the low hundreds of euros. The most valuable, for three to four hundred euros and rising, is the 2015 Canadian release of Java Monster Salted Caramel, which has a caramel-colored faux wooden background. Prices are currently rising with inflation, which means the collecting world is currently being hit by an unfortunate combination of some longtime fans leaving the game and new folks entering who are clearly just there to flip cans to make quick money and not to appreciate the cans or the community. But if you want some good old-fashioned fun when it comes to the vast variety of monster energy drinks, I'll put a link in the show notes to Rhett and Link's recent tasting video of 30 different monster energy drinks on their Good Mythical Morning show, which is 30 more than I have personally ever tried. Well, here in the U.S., Thanksgiving is coming up on Thursday, so this show is taking a little bit of a holiday break. No new shows the next few days. This is the last show of the week. I will return to you on Monday. And I hope all of you who celebrate have a restful and safe long weekend. And those of you who don't, I hope you also have a good week or weekend. And if any of you are looking for a little bit more to listen to, you can, as always, hit up the archives of this show. We've got over 600 episodes in the back catalog with plenty of evergreen content. And, of course, you can also explore some of those videos and podcasts and books that I linked to in the show notes today. But that will be it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. 